Today, we will be talking about some hard topics. So I do want to give a trigger warning that we will be talking about rape, sexual abuse, domestic abuse. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Talk podcast. Hello. We are so excited yeah. to be back. Yes. And I'm glad to be back. Yes, <laughs> I was gone last week. Yes. <laughs> Priscilla was gone last week, but it was because you were working on extremely important things. Yeah. And <laughs> that is totally understandable. Yeah. I'm glad to be back. And last week, we talked a little bit about how we can better support those that have been through traumatic experiences because Priscilla was working on like a super awesome project called the Clothesline Project. Yeah. And she was highlighting the struggles that um, that indigenous um, people go through in particular mm. um, this year. Mm -hmm. And so we thought that it would be really cool to have um, an activist that is currently working to help solve some of those problems and bring a voice to um to all of us to better understand those problems. We thought it would be awesome to have Jennifer on the podcast. Yay! Hello, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being willing to talk to us. So would you mind just introducing yourself and just kind of how you got involved in um, social impact work just with the listeners that don't know who you are sure um, my name is Jennifer Boyce um, I am indigenous and I am of the Oglala Lakota Garifuna Maya and Arakwak tribes and I currently serve as the Pandos board chair and Pandos standing for peaceful advocates for native dialogue and organizing support and so I, the funny thing is I always avoided anything even slightly political. Um, and that was up until Dakota Access Pipeline happened. Um, I've been to my tribe's burial grounds in North Dakota before as a child. And I always planned on taking my children there. And the whole issue just shattered my heart. Um, and I had a back injury at the time and I couldn't go, but I followed it closely. And <laughs> all I could do was create a website of data and information about what the actual issues were and what was happening there because so many non-Native people weren't sure what to believe or what was actually happening. Um, so I wrote it down and spelled it out for people. Um, and then a year later in 2017, a friend invited me to a Pandos MMIW meeting. And I declined multiple times because my family is directly impacted by this issue. And I was just avoiding unpacking all of that trauma. And for those that don't know, um, MMIW stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. That's correct, right, Jennifer? Yes. Thank you. Okay, perfect. But it was such a powerful and affirming space that I, I just continued to attend and it was really healing for me. I realized that if I avoided that self-work and self-healing, my children would end up in the same painful cycle. So I sought therapy and nurtured my spirit as I was participating. And in the beginning, I figured it was safer to stay out of politics. But I quickly realized my entire existence is still a political issue. So I continue to demonstrate with the group and the rest is history. Perfect. Um, so how would you define indigenous peoples? I think that the term indigenous is still something like a term that a lot, a lot of people 
know or understand, you know? Um, so how would you define that term, indigenous peoples? I love this question. And first of all, I just want to clarify that it's, that it, I think it's still, it can be appropriate to still say Native American. Um, so it's not like that is like a swear word or anything like that. <laughs> Um, it's just the indigenous is actually more inclusive because um, I would define indigenous peoples as communities of people throughout the world who have a relationship with our mother earth and remember the practices that they have on how to nurture and maintain balance as being one with our earth mother. Um, so everyone is technically indigenous it's just a matter of if you remember those ancient practices and participate in them with your respective communities so that means that you can be indigenous from more than one place but indigenous ways of knowing um, is also a new concept that is um, out there because it's that's in different parts of the world indigenous ways of knowing are very similar across across the globe so that's how we would define indigenous peoples and then when you say native american it really is specific to the american continent and so indigenous is just more inclusive yeah i really like that i feel like that um i don't know for me personally like my dad is from mexico my mom's from the dominican republic but um I've only like really recently have begun like learning about the indigenous people specifically to like Mexico, you know, and I before I would have never like really thought that I was indigenous. I don't know. I still find it hard to like claim that term for myself just because I didn't grow up with that experience. But I think just like learning about that term and just really like realizing, wow, like there are indigenous people all over the globe. And I think that a lot of people think that's just like Native American, which of course they are part of it. But I think that it's like you said, it's so important to to realize that, you know, like, hey, ev like like every part of the world has indigenous people in some way, shape or form. And I think that it's so important to really connect with that to connect with our ancestors and to connect with our mother earth um i think that it can be something so healing and so personal so i i really love your answer to that i don't know i i feel like it's something that i've been thinking about a lot lately so yeah thank you for sharing that because i used to go around to people and who are from like latin american countries and i'm just like oh so you're um, because when I would go to powwows on the East Coast, um, there would be Peruvians that would, they were Incan. And um, so they're indigenous and they know that. And in that space, like we're all indigenous. And mm -hmm. so I would walk around after high school talking to people. I'm like, oh, you must be like Mayan or Incan or something like that. And mm -hmm. they just get offended. Um, <laughs> Like, oh okay because I was grouping them in with me and they're like we're not dirty Indians you know and yeah such a a shock to me that outside of that space like typically it was a shameful thing in mm -hmm. Latin America for the most part and I think like that's finally starting to change and I love it and I mean I'm indigenous from Honduras and so that's where like my Garifuna Mayan and Arawak tribes are fun and I don't speak those languages. However, I connect to it through the through the way like we teach our children. The first thing we teach our children about our culture is probably um, food. 
Mm. and then language and then stories. So I really encourage people to start um, connecting to their indigeneity or their indigenous communities um, by connecting with people, of course. However, like you can also try foods and um, learn to make them, learn the stories behind them, um, and then learn stories about your culture. Uh, so I always like to tell stories where the oral tradition is very real and very powerful. And as long as you can keep those stories going, I think that's powerful in its own right. So um, because we, I know that um, a lot of indigenous people want people to claim their indigeneity because then that's accepting us as well. And we're also looking for a lot of, in, a lot of our relatives because they were taken from us either through like through different forms of colonization. Yeah. No, yeah, I totally agree with you that in especially within the Lion community, talking about our indigenous roots is still something that can be very difficult because a lot of people don't want to like accept that reality. I don't know. I find it so confusing because it's like, why? Like, why not? But then, I don't know, I think it kind of makes you realize just how much colonization is deeply rooted in our communities, even like in ourselves. And it still continues today because so many people don't want to accept the fact that we do have indigenous ancestors. And, you know, it's important to remember our past and to remember them and their practices and to keep them alive because there's so many people don't want to be seen, like, as you said, like, as quote-unquote, like, savage or something, like how people would use that term for Indigenous people, so. Yeah, exactly. This this is such a, I'm, I feel like I'm just absorbing everything that's being said, because I've never considered myself an Indigenous person as a Black woman, but as I'm thinking about, like, my need to connect to my ancestors and my my growing need just to learn more of where my ancestors came from, where were they taken from? Um, I'm. It's very interesting to me to think that I could possibly identify as, as an indigenous person if I'm looking for that, if I'm seeking that, and if I find that connection to Mother Earth. And yeah. so I really appreciate that this conversation that you have started, and it brings up a lot for me as far as how much has colonization placed itself into us, like Priscilla said, of ingraining into us that we shouldn't be seeking that connection to each other and to earth and to the past. So for you, just like, what was it like growing up as an indigenous person in such a westernized country and such a colonized country where there's been so much harm? Well, in the beginning, it was just normal. However, I knew that there was a stark contrast because both my parents were in the military. So we we moved quite a bit um, and my stepdad was in the Coast Guard. So it was mostly coast to coast. Okay. And um, so I was born in New York City and then we moved to Seattle and then we moved to Virginia and then we moved to you know South Dakota. And I grew up for a bit on my um, tribe's reservation in Pine Ridge for like six years. And then, which is like the longest place I lived. Um, and then I moved from there to go to high school in North Carolina to be um, 
like nearby the tribe where my stepdad is from because he's indigenous from North Carolina. And um, and then from there, like I went to college in Idaho and then I went to grad school in Indianapolis and like everywhere I went all over the country, didn't matter where we were, we always sought out the indigenous community. Um, and my parents always forced me every November to do like some type of like um, Native American performance and like information thing because my parents were very passionate about sharing with people that were not we're not erased, like we're not extinct, we're here. And so they always, I hated it growing up. <laughs> <laughs> not my um, they're just like, you have to tell them about your regalia. And I'm like, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to make friends and I didn't want to be, you know, that weird person. So um, I definitely knew that I was um, an outsider of sorts. Um, and I knew that I wasn't supposed to exist according to like the the main narrative, if that makes sense, mm. um, because my parents were pushing so hard to, ex- you know, explain to people that we do exist and that we are still here and that there is meaning behind what we do in our in our cultural practices. So um, I grew up with that. And then I also grew up in indigenous communities. I learned about salmon and whales and like the northwest tribes uh culture and folklore way before i learned my own you know because i was going to a tribal school and in the muckle street tribal school and i i loved it you know and and so i was very proud of my indigenous heritage but it's like once i left that bubble and that safety of those communities i knew that i was almost like considered an outsider and so I knew that those spaces were not designed for me. Um, And so my parents also worked really hard to help me access resources and be able to have jobs. So for instance, they wouldn't allow me to pick up any accents anywhere we lived. So I couldn't have a New York accent. I couldn't have like (laughs) a Southern accent. They're just like, no, 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 no. You need, don't pick up on these, this slang, but that's how you connect to people around you and culture. So I just, Mm -hmm. weird. Um, but yeah, and so um, we, I, I realized like these spaces were not meant for me and not even the land because I knew that we were forcibly removed. That is just something I always knew as a child, even as a young child, um, especially living in South Dakota, for instance, I never went to Mount Rushmore. I knew that that was not a place for me. Mm-hmm. We went to the Crazy Horse Monument <laughs> quite a bit. But um, we never went to Mount Rushmore and I didn't go to Mount Rushmore until I was an adult and um, we were asked to leave um, because we were like taking pictures with like indigenous like signs and stuff like that. And and we weren't saying anything to anybody, but it was disturbing certain people what they are reading. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, so crazy to me. It was really scary, actually. We got approached by us, like um, one of the park rangers, and mm. they had guns, you know. And what? so at one point, like they were like had their hand on their holster, and it was really scary. Um, and so I was just like, "This is why I was never taken here as a child. It's not safe mm-hmm. to be indigenous in public right here, and it is very." scary and racist whenever you leave the reservation in South Dakota. So like growing up, um, whenever we would go to the grocery store three hours away or an hour and a half away um, in Rapid City, 
um, a security guard would always follow us all throughout the store. And um, I know it was just like a regular thing. Um, And so my mom would make a game out of it because she never wanted us to, you know, to feel that. And so she would make a game out of it. And so she, so since the security guards would always follow us, she would pretend to like be all like sketchy and grab like a sweater or something like that and sneak (laughs) inside the cart and like look over her shoulder. And then we'd all giggle because we're just like, we're going to have some fun. And then (laughs) go through the store and then she would wait until the security guard looked away and then she would ditch the sweater or whatever it was and hide it in the store and then once ever once we um left the the store none of the alarms went off and then the security guard would be freaking out because they saw us like take something <laughs> That's they prove it, find it and then alarms went off and so um we would just like leave the store laughing um and i just have that memory <laughs> um and stuff of just that was our normal and and everything and that's how we got through it um and i know this is kind of like a long answer but there's just it is really kind of strange how i grew up um because i was raised to expect violence and so my parents whenever i turned nine they said okay you and your little brother are gonna have fighting lessons every saturday morning now and both both my parents being in the military, they taught me how to fight military mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. But um, the way that they taught me is that uh, if you are going to hit someone, it needs to be in self-defense. And if you're going to be defending yourself, there's none of this, you know, slapping or, you know, hitting slightly and then waiting for them to hit you. You never give them a chance to hit you back. So if you start hitting someone, you don't stop until they are either unconscious or they are running away from you. I mean, I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> How empowering, though, you know, as a nine-year-old being like, okay, I can do this. Yeah, and so um, as a result, I, I did get in physical altercations, but I was never hit. Um, and some people cheer when I tell that story um, because I was sexually assaulted. And what happened is I beat the daylights out of him, um, the young man that did that. And I, but I felt like a monster after because I completely disassociated and he had to beg me to stop hitting him. And um, and so when I tell that story to people, sometimes people cheer because I was just never hit. And I, you know, I did the thing that I think a lot of people hope, like if someone like assaults you that you, that you'd completely destroy them. Um, But I always think it's sad because I always felt like fighting to defend myself was somehow denying my humanity. I think you touched a lot on just the different kinds of challenges I tried to face being Indigenous growing up that I think a lot of people probably wouldn't think are like issues in the first place, right? Being followed by a security person when you're in a store and by you just embracing your like indigeneity like a like a trooper coming up to you and being like you guys need to stop like that's something that not a lot of people have to face every day or they don't even have to think about but for you as an indigenous person like you need to be thinking about that a lot right and kind of I I would assume kind of being okay like who can I who can I trust who can I not trust 
um, and and just having to tiptoe around like that. So what what are some other challenges that you've had to face growing up and even still now as an Indigenous person that maybe not everyone else would have to face in their day-to-day life? Well, I wanted to unpack that word surrounded as being surrounded by Western culture, because yes, there is like the surrounded if you are on a reservation. However, there is a constant internal battle with white supremacy that I think everyone has to go through in this country. And it impacts tribal governments, um, it impacts Indigenous practices, um, it impacts the way that we're working to return to our Indigenous way of, ways of knowing. And so I just wanted to, to state that because that is always something that is um, really hard work. And we have to recognize that internalized colonization, that internalized um, racism before we can start to work on it, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, even if you are growing up in these like tribal communities um, or even, or if you're in like an urban area, it doesn't really matter where you are because we're all having to be dependent on these systems for resources and access to different things, right? So I really feel like that it's not so much being surrounded as it is like trying to work to um, work through what you've internalized because we're all taught these small messages in every space that we're in. And if every space that I'm in as an indigenous person is that I don't exist anymore, I'm not welcome here. Like that can start to impact you and your mental health or the way you may start to perpetuate that same violence towards other people. And violence doesn't necessarily have to be with fists. It can be with mm-hmm. and with mindsets. So I think that's um, absolutely a part of that. I really appreciate that part you talked about of that internalized racism that I think just us as colored women um, that we felt that in some way it may be different from each other because of our different um backgrounds however I think that's commonality that I know I've talked to Priscilla about this and that you bring that up and that it does make you feel inhuman um and I really appreciate you being willing to share your experience with sexual assault and I'm so sorry that the fact that you defended yourself and having to not only deal with the trauma of being assaulted but also dealing with those feelings of feeling like a monster for defending yourself um i it's so it's not fair that these feelings are inside of us and we feel um we we feel guilty for defending ourselves because i think that westernized culture that colonization has tried to put us in this box of this is what you need to do Mm -hmm. um you're small you should expect violence because that's what you deserve and it's just so difficult, so difficult. So I really, I really appreciate you being willing to talk about that because I think that's, that's something I feel a lot of our listeners can definitely relate to. Thank you. Your work as an activist, I think sometimes people think activism is solely walking on the streets and um, standing up in front of the cops when they're trying to 
control a crowd, you know. Um, but you talked earlier about you starting a website and educating people as a form of activism. And just as you continue to explore that side of yourself as an activist, what have been some of those wins that you've seen um, and some of the barriers that you've seen um, as you've tried to to help progress the situations that your community's in? Something that I really see as wins all the time are changed minds and hearts. Um, even with people who um, may seem like the most ignorant or uninformed about Indigenous people in general, it's really... Um, it's really fascinating to see how committed some people are to changing their mind and heart because they know, they know something's off. They just know it inside. And then um, we have a conversation with them and it's like the answer that they were seeking. Um, and one, one young man came up to me after a presentation um, and uh, actually it was at BYU. One young man came after me, came up to me after the presentation and he, he asked me all these questions that were extremely triggering and really racist. Like, do you all pay taxes on the reservation? And oh my gosh. <laughs> I know I was just like trying not to roll my eyes, but be respectful because I, I know that I'm going to probably get offensive questions, but I do strive to answer them. And so a lot of times I will go into a space with, um, we call them our white allies or like our non-native allies um, because it doesn't hit them the same way that it hits me. And so they can kind of field those questions so mm -hmm. that I'm less triggered or not having to, I can compose myself. So um, something that uh, I really learned was he was asking me those questions because we went back another day. And, I, and he shared his experience with his father, who had a, a lot of racist ideology that he tried to raise his children with. And this guy just did not believe it. And but he never knew what to say in response. And um, so I I realized that he was asking me the questions that his dad has assumptions for. And so he was trying to have something to go back to and teach his family because, and, and that was like a really awesome, it was a really annoying at first, but yeah, yeah. It ended up being a really awesome experience. And um, the other, the flip side of it, um, empowering communities is another win that I love, love, love to see, especially young girls who um, wear like the MMIW pin or, um, you know, the fact that we're able to give us a scholarship to a princess at the powwow and, and everything or like a youth leader at the powwow and everything and it's really amazing to to see um just how they show up for their communities as such young people and how um when they when i get to see them they're just like look what i'm doing to to do this work and um they do it in such a fun uh way and I've, I've always loved working with young people. And then you have, um, I've been approached by many um, mothers and grandmothers who have just said like, thank you for doing this work because I still can't talk about it. And, um, and that's been really, sorry, it always gets me emotional because I would take the moment and just stand there and cry with them and grieve for a moment because 
it's really hard to to function day to day and also have to carry that weight of grief when a family member is missing or who has been murdered. And um, and I know that grief where you're just supposed to go about your day, but you need to take the moment and grieve. And it's really helpful to have someone else there with you who understands that grief. And so um, it's been really beautiful to to come together because they this was not talked about in our community for so many years. We knew it was happening, but it felt powerless to stop it. And um, and then having uh, this no shame in our identity um, and empowering one another um, as Indigenous people, it's really beautiful to see um, whenever we're able to bring people together and or be part of a group of people, Indigenous people who are standing up for themselves and we're, we're speaking up for our right to exist um, and to have resources and everything. And it's a beautiful thing because it's, it's reclaiming our humanity, really. Um, and so it's not, um, I think one of the barriers that I have um, is that on an individual level with the changed minds and hearts that I mentioned before, it's not enough to have it change on an individual level because white supremacy is systemic. And when we don't recognize how embedded white supremacy is, we feel it's normal. And then it remains our default and it continues to be a major barrier. So I think that's probably the biggest barrier that I see in all things connected to it um, is that, oh, well, we teach tolerance and tolerance is just like, I can tolerate you being in the same room with me without me attacking. Mm -hmm. Like, how is that the goal, you know? And, (laughs) um, but unless we address like the scaffolding in the room, the setup, the fact that we're in a colonized space and how we're, you know, um, how we're conditioned to believe this about ourselves or behave in this way, that this is considered appropriate, but this is not. Colonization is very violent. And like mm-hmm. I said, that's not limited to fists and, and everything that continues in colonized spaces. And so until we recognize the setup and the, the scaffolding, it's really hard to to progress in activism work really, I think of any kind of any of these social issues because colonization is at the heart of pretty much all of it in some way, shape or form. So I think that's probably the biggest barrier is when people think that individually they're doing so well about being tolerant and, you know, um, and then they forget to start to dismantle the scaffolding. So that's the thing I think um, is the biggest barrier, but the thing that could be helpful is to remember to dismantle. And I might have to do that in presentations, like don't forget to dismantle your spaces. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's like what, that's like so intimidating, I think for so many people, but when you break it down as it's relationality, if you're willing just to see everyone as a human, and the fact that you're doing that constantly and um, you sound like you're someone that is patient, which is not something that I possess. <laughs> <A lot> of, <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, 
but um, that's something that I feel like I'm learning from this conversation and from you, Jennifer, is that when we're just willing to see each other as human, it is so much easier to grieve with each other and to like see each other where we're starting and where we're at. And it's so much easier to take down those racist ideals and beliefs um, when we're willing to just listen. And so honestly, I really hope, I hope someone's listening to this conversation that maybe came in with some bias and um, even racist ideals and beliefs that they'll be able to listen to this and say, this is something that I, I want to break down for myself. So honestly, thank Mm. you for Oh, well, we all have bias, you oh, know, yeah. and yeah. we have that internalized stuff too. And so mm-hmm. I, I would hope that even if you aren't dismantling like your whole like college classroom setup or whatever, that you're dismantling the stuff inside, that is enough as well, because then you can like see that as you walk about um, the world and see where you can recognize colonization for what it is, because it hides in plain sight. Mm-hmm. So if you aren't actively dismantling it in some way, shape or form, whether that starts with you or in like whatever like space that you oc- occupy, whether you're like a professor, for instance, and you can totally start to dismantle um, that space. And all that does is give more people access to resources, you know? And so it can be super intimidating and feel like, you know, like I can't solely take down white supremacy, but we all can do small parts. And even if that small part is dismantling that white supremacy um, myth and everything within our own hearts and minds and our bodies, that can absolutely um, help everyone as a collective because then you're modeling it you know so yeah um well I have just really like really really appreciated this conversation I have been just really thinking about things and really like, reflecting on things um and for my final question for you Jennifer I think you kind of already have answered it um with this previous question but is there anything else that um, non-Indigenous like or non-Native people can do to better support your communities and movements? So the funny thing is you said I was patient. I am not. <laughs> I think I just learned um, how to, uh, you know, like go into certain things and how mm-hmm. to fight my battles, you know, like which battles to face and how to address them and everything because like I said before, I really wanted to cuss out that student who was asking yeah. this question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was very, I would not describe myself as patient in that moment. However, uh, the one thing I think that keeps me going is I just kind of held, not held my tongue, but I was curious about where they were, he was going with this because I could tell that it was not a personal attack. It was genuine curiosity. And they felt safe asking me. And I wanted to honor that feeling of being safe um, because I have had friends who just continued in ignorance on something because they're too afraid to ask the question because they're too afraid to 
to offend someone, but they really genuinely don't know. And so I prepare myself for those spaces, but I, I limit it to the space I'm going to be in. I'm not just taking these questions anytime. Um, but yeah. And so I think something that indigenous, that people who aren't indigenous could do better is to connect with your own indigeneity. Everything we talked about before, I hope that everyone might do that or might just explore that even if i mean we have people who are danish and welsh who are like returning to their indigenous roots and languages and everything and then we have like a lot of indigenous communities have ties to ireland because we had that same fight for so long to protect our language and our way of life and our indigenous identities so i know that there is indigenous heritage everywhere and we're still recovering from colonization but i think um what i hope people get is to also celebrate it to be proud of it because it is hard to be indigenous and be proud of it in certain spaces. And I, I would hope that we can be proud of it, but also not be tokenized or fetishized as we go about doing that, you know? Um, so I think something that people can better do to support is to continue to inform themselves, especially about the land that they are on and the people that it is stolen from. And to recognize that the land, wherever you are, is stolen land. And that can be hard to reckon with, especially if you like lived on the land for like three generations. We have been here for time immemorial. And so y'all just got here. (laughs) (laughs) From the grand perspective of things. And I think thinking about that is important. Um, And my initial reason why I don't think I'm very patient, because my my initial response was like, just get out of the way. Galloway and follow our lead a lot of times patriarchy and white supremacy combined always means that if an indigenous person or a person of color or uh, someone who is femme tries to lead the way white supremacy tries to curtail that and like take credit or you know be the platform or some something like that where they try to take that power and usurp it or also um, go in on that power and that does not need to happen. It just, you just need to take a step back. And a lot of times when, especially people who identify as white are in a space in an indigenous space and they feel uncomfortable, they start to talk a lot and they start to take up the space. And really it's okay to be quiet. And that's something that, um, and I don't mean that in a rude way. I just mean that in, in, my tribal culture at the very least, if you wanted to learn something and we are learning from our elders. So if you want to learn something from an elder, you sit down near them and you shut up. You are quiet. You don't say anything. It may be an hour that passes before they acknowledge you, but that is like traditionally the old way that I learned how to learn from my elders. And that that may change. That may look different now. But that is something that I was raised with, that if you want to learn from an elder, you sit down, be quiet, and you wait until they're ready to teach you, until they're, they recognize that you're ready to learn. And I just approach that through other Indigenous communities, because I don't know everybody's Indigenous ways. Mm-hmm. And so when I enter in, into a space, that's what I do as well. And so this goes for like really everybody. And that's um, a beautiful way to basically give them the floor, to give them that power and to follow their lead. So I think that's a powerful thing to do. And the last thing I'll, 
I'll say on this is um, I really uh, wanted to share this idea of um, blood quantum <laughs> is it needs to go away and it needs to go away among non-natives because not, you know, indigenous people and native Americans are learn unlearning this as we speak, we're unlearning this in our own communities. And one of the reasons why it can be so touchy and also why some people don't want to claim their indigeneity at first is because we do have laws that say that you can't steal our work, that you can't pretend to be indigenous, you know? And so um, they have this blood quantum thing and that's not for that, but it's also used along with that. And this is extremely problematic and difficult to navigate as an indigenous person and also as a non-native. Um, especially if you're trying to um, acknowledge your indigenous heritage, right? Because you can worry that you're stealing, you know, an identity. Mm. Um, but we are slowly but surely like unlearning this colonized idea of blood quantum. And that, that totally um, impacted our relationships with other cultures as well. For instance, there's so many Black and indigenous people, especially in the South, um, that that blood quantum was a way to separate us from each other, to separate our relatives. Because, you know, you have the one drop rule, one drop of black blood means that you're completely black. And so that applied to black and indigenous people as well. And then they would, there was the separation of power because there was a lot of uprisings in the South with black and indigenous allies coming together to, to go up against white supremacy that we never talk about. But that's because we keep trying to put everyone in one box. You can only check one box when you're um, listing your tribe. You can only enroll in one tribe and therefore like your other tribes seem like there's no one in them because you can only claim one. For instance, like Nansamund in Virginia is a tribe that people assume to be extinct or be like super small in number. But in reality, there are a lot of people who are Nansamund or descended from Nansamund, but they can only claim Tuscarora or Maharan or Saponi um, or Saponi. And so um, we have this like fake erasure <laughs> that's going on all over our continent that you can only claim one tribe and that not only have we lost like tribal members through missing and murdered indigenous people, through boarding schools, through forced adoption, but also through forgetting who we are. That is like a current colonization that I think continues is we forget who we are and then we don't claim it. Um, and we aren't allowed to claim it. But then remembering, but if we can remember um, and not be ashamed by the distance to claim that indigeneity, I think that can that is something that can be done as well. And just learning about it, and that can take years. So it's not going to be something that happens overnight or that you could do this week or this month yeah. in honor of Native Americans. You know? um, but this idea of you can only choose one tribe or that you have this much blood in this tribe and this much blood in this tribe, and therefore the, the percentage pilot, that never works. It's not accurate ever for one. And then it's just, it's a lie. And it teaches you that, you 
you are lesser in one area compared to another. I think this can absolutely apply to people who are mixed race um, and feeling like they have to choose one. And I really, something I want to do in my activism work moving forward is to figure out a way to learn how to embrace and claim all of it, all of it, to love every part of yourself um, and not limit it to one drop, you know? So I definitely um, think that's something that can be done in the future and that I hope to work on as well. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. I I love that, that like, sit down and shut up. Like, I, yeah. I really feel <laughs> like I've just learned so much from this conversation and have gained just a little bit more proximity to understanding better the the difficulties but also the beauty that is um native american culture and just just how much strength comes from your community and uh thank you so much for sharing so much information with us mm -hmm. and also just helping us embrace like our own um our own backgrounds, our own past and helping us to just feel enlightened today. Yeah. Honestly, that's just how yeah. I feel. Same, same. Yeah. Thank you. So is, yeah, thank you, Jennifer. And um, is there a way, what can, as far as like social media or contact, um, is there accounts for Pando or, um, all of the movements that you're a part of, anything that our followers can do to stay caught up on what you're doing and or organizations that you think would be helpful for them to follow? Absolutely. Oh, shoot. I wish I had a prepared list for this because I know there's so many, um, but I know that we have on our website a lot of um, like some resources and connections and um, other people that we follow on there as well. And we're also trying to um, compile a list of indigenous businesses that people can be aware of as well. So that will be coming okay. at some point. That's um, www.pandos.org. And then um, we also have a uh, like Instagram and that's Utah, at Utah Pandos. And then uh, we also have like, at MMIW Utah um, as well for MMIW campaign. And then um, you can see all of the projects that we're working on on our website. And there's also a, a way to get in touch with us through the website if you would like to volunteer or donate or, um, yeah, or work alongside us, you know. So uh, I think there's lots of, that's a good place to start. Um, for, so, yeah. And then we also are on Facebook, so you can find our pages, Pandos and um, MMIW Utah. Perfect. And I'll include all of those websites in the description of the podcast. So once you're done listening, you can just click right on those. Um, thank you again, Jennifer, thank you. for your time. And we are so grateful for your, for your yes. wisdom and... Um, sharing your experiences with us and listeners we hope to hear from you if you have any questions or um, want to reach out with any topics that you're wanting to hear more about please um, reach out to us at realtalkuvu at gmail.com and thank you and keep it real thank you thank you pila maye.